Good morning, everyone. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. No matter where you're from or what holidays you celebrate, you probably have a tradition that you keep each winter as well. Maybe you watch movies in your pajamas with your family on Christmas Eve. Maybe you make mochi, those sticky rice cakes with your friends and family for New Year's Day. Regardless of what they are, these traditions bring us comfort, joy, and togetherness during some of the darkest days of the year. This hour, I'm talking with three guests about the many unique holiday traditions in our state, where they came from, and why they are so important to us. And whether you celebrate Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, or Hmong New Year, I want you to share your traditions with us as well this hour. Give us a call. Do you have a beloved winter tradition? Tell us about it. Or have your traditions changed over the years, particularly over the last few years during the pandemic? Have you started some new traditions? The phone lines are open. You can call us at 651-227-6000. Again, the number is 651-227-6000. You can also call 800-242-2828. Tweet me at Angela Davis NPR. Let's meet our three guests. We have with us Mi Vang. Mi is the president of the United Hmong Family Incorporated. Good morning, Mi. Thanks for being here in the studio. Good morning, Angela. Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you. On the line, we have Anton Troyer joining us. Anton is a professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University. He specializes in tribal sovereignty and history and the Ojibwe language and culture. Hello, Anton. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Hi, glad you could be with us. And also here in the studio is Alex Weston. Alex is the program associate at the Minnesota Historical Society here in St. Paul. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Angela. Thank you so much for having me here. I, I feel like we're having family time, all kinds of families. This is good. I like this. Uh, I mentioned uh, today is the winter solstice, which means it's the shortest, but also the darkest day of the year. Alex, as our, our, our historian here, uh, it seems that so many people across cultures and places have some sort of winter celebration during the darkest days of the year. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a number of reasons, but uh, one of the most obvious is just it is the darkest day of the year, <laughs> and we got to do something. But also, if you think of, especially in northern climates, historically, until fairly recently, most places were agriculturally based societies. So what are you going to do in the winter? You got to keep the animals alive, you got to chop firewood, but there's not necessarily as many tasks as there would be in the summer when you're gathering hay, when you're planting crops, when you're harvesting. You're just sort of hunkering down. It's a time when there's not a lot to do, but it's also a very dangerous time. It's a time when, historically, this is the time of year when people freeze to death. This is when people traveling get stranded in storms. This is um, both a dangerous time, but also a time when you are huddled in with your family and friends and community, whether you like them or not. <laughs> and so one of the most natural human responses to that, I think, is to throw some sort of a celebration, make use of that extra time that you have. It's a time when you've gathered up food that you've been preparing the rest of the year. Time to have a feast. Time to eat it. Mm -hmm. Have something to look forward to. Exactly. And and if you look throughout the year, there's you know holidays that I think serve as important markers of simply time passing. But um, a time when the days... It's the shortest day of the year here, but that means starting tomorrow, the days start getting longer. So it's a mm -hmm. perfect sort of 
time to look forward to rebirth. Mm-hmm. And uh, Anton, you're there uh, at Bemidji State University. You grew up in a, in a multicultural household. Uh, I'm told your mother was indigenous and your father was Jewish. Now, what were some of your favorite uh, winter traditions and your memories uh, of growing up? Yes, certainly it was a multicultural experience for me as a youngster. My father was an Austrian Jewish immigrant and Holocaust survivor, and he would celebrate Hanukkah. And my mother was born and raised on the Leech Lake Reservation in northern Minnesota. And uh, for her, you know, she'd be hauling us around to traditional Ojibwe storytelling events. We did a lot of outdoor winter activities. Uh, But I think the cross-cultural experience was really great for me. I would at times be an Indian and at times be the Indian, depending (laughs) on what environment I was in. And I I think the uh, code switching and different experiences uh, were really great. So as a child, was this time of the year, the wintertime particularly, was it something you look forward to? to or, or did it stress you out because you had you know a lot to consider about what was coming different things were coming you know as a kid I didn't really think about all of that I was along for the ride and just <laughs> you know I always looked forward to it certainly the storytelling events were really fun because they were filled with humor that was very relatable for a youngster um, and also just having time with my family and being outdoors was also something that I really looked forward to. Mm-hmm. I have a big family myself. We have nine children and now they're getting a little older and many of them have partners and we're in the grandbaby business. And so, <laughs> you know, the holidays are always a great time to pull mm-hmm. everybody together. And me, what about you? What were some of your memories of winter traditions uh, growing up? Yeah, uh, some of my memories my family, uh, my, I was raised in Minnesota. My parents resettled here when I was about three months old. And so I pretty much grew up in Minnesota. And all of the traditions in Minnesota have become my own family traditions. But one that is quite different is our Hmong um, New Year celebrations and the three-step process um, where growing up, we just know that as September looms around, my parents are preparing for what is called the nochea, uh, the home blessing. And so whether we're away at college or we're working, we knew that we had to make sure that we make time to come home for that weekend that mom and dad is preparing for the family blessing. So that that's a tradition that we always make sure that we um, prepare for, make time for, and it's so nice. I think I agree with you, Anton. Um, winter traditions every year, as a child, you just kind of, right along where wherever your parents took you. And um, as a child, attending the Minnesota Hmong New Year, I mean, that was just something that I went to because I, I come from such a large family with five other siblings. Mm-hmm. And so it was just the six of us with mom and dad towing us um, to this event with hundreds of other kids that we could play with or um, get to see what other people are doing. And now it's grown into something so much more meaningful. It, and it's a very huge celebration here in the Twin Cities. Um, me, as, as a president of the Hmong United Family, you now put on the annual St. Paul Hmong New Year. Tell us about the timing of it. I mean, when it, it takes place the weekend after Thanksgiving each year, but how long does it last? Yeah, so in Minnesota, because of the winter, a lot of things have changed coming to the U.S. where the Hmong um, originally are from uh, Southeast Asia and migrated from China there. That's a whole story in itself. But with knowing that, um, 
in Southeast Asia, it is celebrated for multiple days. But here in Minnesota, we, we, we rent a facility to keep warm. And it's about two days um, to enjoy the culture and the heritage and uh, some of the food. It's interesting because in Minnesota, this was our 42nd, would have been our 44th um, anniversary in celebrating and putting on this event. This uh, year. This year, mm-hmm. yeah. And last year, I know the, the New Year's celebration was canceled due to COVID. A lot of uh, traditions and celebrations canceled. Um, and, you know, the pandemic really has changed in many ways. So, you know, what was the impact of having it canceled? I mean, I'll, I'll ask all of you that, like having events canceled over the, you know, maybe in 2020, 2021, and, and just different this year. What have you seen me? Yeah, what was different this year was we we were nervous that uh, people, especially the elders from our Hmong community, were not ready to come back together right. again because COVID is still here. Um, it, it was uh, hard planning. Uh, a lot of people were still um, not wanting to come out, um, even uh, to volunteer to support such an extravagant event. And it was hard organizing. But uh, on the day of, I was just sharing with uh, Alex before we came in here that we were very surprised. 20,000 people attended on day one, which was historically very different um, in the makeup. Probably some time ago, that was uh, normal. But in the last 10, 10 years, we haven't seen such large numbers. And it was a very strong showing that people are ready to come out. And you said to me, you noticed missing faces. Missing faces. It's very, uh, it was very hard to come together when we peered into the crowds, uh, the pandemic. We've lost a lot of families and friends and pillars from the Hmong community. Many of the Hmong leadership that brought us here to the United States, um, looking into just the seatings, it was very sparse with they died. Hmong elders. Yeah. Many of them died. Many of them yeah. died. Um, and Alex, what can you say about the impact of the pandemic on a lot of these, you know, festivities and, and traditions that we look forward to? Uh, many of us are carrying around a lot of grief. Yeah, and it's it's obviously um, a huge impact on everybody, but each family experiencing it differently, <clears throat> especially if they have lost someone. It's, I think, something that will be interesting. As a historian, I always want to zoom into the future and look back on it, because sometimes when you're in the middle of a historic event, as we definitely are, it's it's hard. I, I miss that perspective you get as a historian when you can kind of gather all sources and, and tidy things up. But looking to the past, I can say that a lot of the sort of most fruitful times in terms of new holiday traditions blossoming in the United States have been times of immense crisis and tragedy when people were missing loved ones, when people were missing that sense of community that was maybe disrupted. So, for example, right after the American Civil War, right after World War II, these are both two times in American history in which there was a lot of loss, a lot of grief, and yet many of the holiday traditions that are still being observed today came out of those periods. Mm. Mm. Anton, what can you share about just the impact of the pandemic and just, you know, so many families have have lost loved ones. This may be the first, um, you know, holiday or winter that that literally there's a, a someone there's a seat at the table that's that, that is empty this year. And so a lot of people are carrying this sense of loss as they enter into these traditions they used to look forward to. Yeah, it's interesting. I was listening to both Alex and me sharing about, you know, both the personal and historical perspectives about this. And I was thinking about something a little more spiritual from the Ojibwe cultural toolbox, which is that, you know, at this time of the year, we have our shortest 
days and longest nights. And the Ojibwe words for the months in the lunar calendar, are really the little spirit moon and the great spirit moon. It's considered a very sacred time of the year. Um, the northern lights are often more active this time of the year. Some people will describe the northern lights as, as the souls of the departed dancing with one another. Mm. And oftentimes, as you know, Alex was rightly sharing, people were less busy because most of their harvests were in, the weather was cold, and there was a little more time to think about other things. And this was a time of the year when people would often you know, feast our departed relatives, um, would gather for social events like traditional storytelling and things like that. But also to just, uh, you know, have some perspective and kind of honor those who had passed on. And so I think this is something spiritually and culturally that's that Ojibwe people are mindful of. And certainly I have been as well. You know, my father had passed away in 2016 and my mother in 2020, right at the start of the pandemic. And so, you know, these were some of our first mm -hmm. years without them and me transitioning from, you know, middle of the pack to like family patriarch and trying to be an engine that pulls people together. There've been a lot of big changes. And much like me was explaining, we've lost many elders throughout the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And we've seen a real shift in who is kind of leading in our communities and in our families. So I've been thinking about that. And it's, it's a bittersweet uh, time and experience, but I think it's important to see and acknowledge everything that we as individuals have been through and that everything that we collectively have been through as we take stock and both celebrate and remember. We're talking about winter traditions, family traditions, holiday traditions, and we want to hear about yours. Tell us about them. Have your traditions changed over the past few years, or do you have any new traditions you've started in the past few years, particularly during the pandemic? You can call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. You can also leave me a message on Twitter. I'm at Angela Davis, NPR. Anton, tell us more about uh, some of these o Ojibwe winter traditions. You mentioned storytelling uh, earlier. Tell us uh, about the significance of telling stories stories, particularly in, in the wintertime. Yeah, there, there is an ancient and ongoing custom in Ojibwe communities, and actually for many other tribes too, that when winter comes and there's snow on the ground, a lot of animals are hibernating, birds have migrated out. And this is the time when we would tell, you know, kind of the, the Ojibwe equivalent of Aesop's fables, Wainabuju <laughs> stories. Wainabuju is this character's half human, half spirit who at times is playing tricks on animals and people and also doing, you know, serious or spiritual things. And the stories are loaded with teachings, but also with all kinds of humor. And I vividly remember these stories because they included some of my favorite subjects as a child, as Wayne Bouju was either having conversations with his hind end, or there was <laughs> some crazy effort to like get new food or play tricks on animals. So there I remember laughing a lot um, and kind of staying there till late at night while people were telling stories. So we try to do this with my kids and grandkids too, and it's lots of fun. 
Uh, as we look uh, at uh, other holiday traditions uh, for many Minnesotans, Alex, uh, Ludafisk is one that gets mm-hmm. a, a lot of publicity right now. Sure. <laughs> Ludafisk, a holiday tradition for many folks. How did this become a tradition? What do we know about the history of that? Well, it comes from Scandinavia and I think probably remains in largely Scandinavian American <laughs> circles. It's 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 not uh, made a huge crossover hit as far as I can tell. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's preserved in, in oil. It's fish. And that's the kind of food that is available to you in the winter. Again, today we have refrigeration and shipping. And, you know, we're used to being able to get any kind of food any time of year. But until pretty recently, historically, that was not the case. So a lot of these wintertime foods, they are simply what was available in winter, as is the tradition of having a big feast. Sometimes um, you only had so much food to get your livestock through the winter. So right in the middle, it's time to slaughter and eat, <laughs> and to put it bluntly. Mm-hmm. So having a big midwinter feast relates to just the realities of food preservation, and lutefisk is the Scandinavian variant on that. And me, is there a, a particular food or particular foods um, that are part of, of Hmong family tradition uh, for celebrations? Yeah, definitely. Um, we have the Nautia ceremony right before the very big Hmong uh, New Year celebration at the River Center, and that's the home cleansing uh, step um, and also the soul calling. And as a part of soul calling, we have uh, a ceremony where either the head of the household or the cultural conductor provide eggs um, uh, as a part of the soul calling and chicken. So families come together and there's a Hmong saying that says, and that really means that if you don't have tofu and mochi, which is pretty much rice patty or rice cake, um, you are not celebra- celebrating Hmong New Year. So it's really just coming together and making the uh, rice patty as a family. And in Laos, there is no um, electric rice Mm-hmm. cake maker or rice patty maker or mochi maker. So it's a, it's a very laborious um, activity where it involves men pounding on the sticky rice uh, when it's cooked to make it um, expandive, expandable and molding, uh, where the women play a role in molding the mochi. I have to ask, uh, is there ever any teasing or maybe some trash talking over who makes <laughs> the best mochi and who like, you know what, sis, sit down. You don't need to bring that. This yes. Year. Does that yeah. happen? Yep, that, that does happen. Um, I'm not a very good um, <laughs> for, uh, molder with mochi. It yeah. takes a certain skill so that it doesn't stick on your eat. And one of the things that I will never do is the sweet syrup. Um, I, I, I just don't think I have the patience to sit there and lower heat to melt <laughs> sugar. So those are some things that we are not allowed to do if you're not very good at it. And Anton, does that happen in some of your family gatherings where there, you know, we know who, who cooks well and who doesn't, and there's some encouragement for the folks who don't cook well to maybe not? <laughs> oh, yes, for sure. <laughs> you know, I think traditionally the Ojibwe were probably more opportunistic <laughs> feeders with a varied diet, and so there was less one food that would be focused on. Mm-hmm. But you know, we have a lot of fun with this now. We sometimes have, uh, you know, our family's equivalent of an Iron Chef competition, and we'll just pick a featured ingredient. Ooh. Um, someday I got to get, uh, you know, Sean Sherman up here for this. But <laughs> we, uh, you know, we would do something like wild rice or walleye or something like that. And then we would, uh, you know, we'd have judges and, and we'd have a have a cook-off. I like uh, that. Lots of fun. 
right? We're talking about uh, family traditions, holiday traditions. We want to hear about yours. Have they changed over the years? What do you do every year that you look forward to? Is anything different this year because of some of the changes of the last few years? Have you started some new traditions? Call us at 651 651- Two two seven six thousand or eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight. As I talk with three guests, and now let's take some phone calls from our listeners uh, in St. Paul. We have Melvin on the phone. Good morning, Melvin. What did you want to tell us about family or holiday traditions? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Sure, uh, this is a great show. I want to. My folks are from the deep south, and uh, you know we're of course bipartisan of the. Um, Great migration. A lot yes. of black folks, of course, moved up north and looking for opportunities. But we'd always go down home, we'd call it, every Christmas to, uh, you know, meet up with family. It's a, it's a tradition in a lot of black families to go to church and have great food. And it, it hurts my heart that my kids and grandkids are not able to experience that as much as myself because the patriarchs and matriarchs, have, many of them have passed away. But mm-hmm. very rich time in my life and helped to shape me in, in so many ways and and kept our family together. We'd always go down home. I don't know if that's a tradition that you're familiar with. But oh, yeah. I well, to share that. Melvin, I'm from Virginia. And so the way I, you know, I try to keep my family traditions alive here in Minnesota, where I spend my winters now, is through the food. So um, do you cook? Do you try to bring back some of those family recipes to get, keep some of the, those traditions alive? Well, uh, I do cook a little bit, but uh, I, I let my mother do most of that. Mm-hmm. So she's with me, uh, um, and, uh, and and we have my mother-in-law. So we, we do enjoy the cooking, but the, we would li- literally, we didn't have anything. We were poor, and we would travel, uh, driving in our cars. Everyone would converge and go back, back down to Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, you know my folks, Earl and Eunice, yeah. Eunice Miller. Oh, yes, uh, of and course. And we travel. Uh, that was a tradition. Hundreds of us. Literally, it would, would, we'd pack churches out, and we'd pack highways out, making our way down home. So it, uh, it's that movement. The food was, is really great, but it's that movement that, and coming together that we've kind of lost a little bit. But, Melvin, you have storytelling, so it sounds like you've shared this, these stories and these traditions with your children. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. My, my father is the greatest... <laughs> One of the greatest storytellers that have ever lived, in my mind, anyway, and that has uh, those stories continue to, to live on in in our hearts and minds, and I continue to tell them to my kids, of course. And so, Melvin, what do you think is the value of having these traditions, both as memories and trying to keep them alive and with with younger folks? I think it it, it provides a sense of uh, his roots uh, that to stabilize and give life a sense of another level of meaning. You know, you're connected to something greater than yourself, uh, a family, your faith, uh, and all of that grounds you and, and, and gives you a, a sense of, of hope and a sense of responsibility, I think, that I, I want to carry this forward. And mm-hmm. I've been, I have a, a, a job to do. So. And have you started new traditions because, uh, you know, you're no longer, your family's no longer living in the Deep South? Have you started some new ones? Um, yes, we have some new traditions. Uh, the, the young people, of course, are asserting themselves as we want them to do. And and so we have some unique traditions in that uh, we uh, all come together and we spend the night together and we, uh, you know, movies and that kind of thing. So there's some, some new kinds of uh, uh, traditions that have emerged that I'm, I'm excited about. Right. I, uh, yeah. 
So, That's uh, Melvin calling in from St. Paul. Reverend Melvin Miller, correct? Yes. All right. Correct. Thank you, Reverend Miller. Um, Anton, what do you hear and what he shared about? Um, again, we, we hear that theme, like there's been loss, there's there's memories, um, and a sense of, of you know, that tr- traditions can bring us hope. Oh, for sure. I, you know, I think all of us human beings, no matter what kind of, you know, culture or cultures we come from, that there's a real value to not just emphasizing to young people, spread your wings and fly, go pursue a job or an opportunity, but to emphasize our, our roots as well. A lot of times, you know, in Ojibwe communities, and this has certainly been a tradition for us, we've been very active hunters and harvesters. And usually this is the end of big game hunting season. And when somebody would have their first time being a successful hunter, we'd have a special feast for them. And there'd be a prayer. And instead of just eating, we would kind of ritually feed the successful hunter, offering a spoon of food to them. Mm -hmm. And they would refuse the first bite and say, no, I'm thinking about children who don't have enough to eat. And we'd say, oh, okay, and put it back and take another spoonful and offer it again. And they'd refuse again and say, no, I'm thinking about my elders who can't get out in the woods to hunt for themselves. And we'd put it back and again offer and they'd say, no, I'm thinking about my family and my community and people who came here today to support me. We say, oh, okay. And then we'd offer a fourth time and they'd eat. And we would say, you know, you just changed your life. Because up until today, you were what we call a dependent. You depended on all the people in this room. And there they were, aunts, uncles, grandparents, and so forth. But today, you're providing for all of us. And that's what it means to be an adult. And from today on, you'll have a special power. You'll have it when you hunt or fish or gather, but you'll have it when you get a job. And it's the power to gather resources. So use your power and think about children who don't have enough or elders who can't get it for themselves, your family, your community, mm-hmm. and they take the rest of their kill, like packaged up venison, and they give it away. So they're impoverished, but rich. And I have seen this ceremony be transformative with my children. One time I had a friend who's complaining, I can't get out in the woods, my back. And one of my kids was about 16 years old. He didn't say anything. But he went out in the woods and he harvested a deer and cleaned it up. And he went over to my friend's house and just filled up his freezer. And my friend called later on the phone and said, I I didn't even know people remembered that. Mm. And Mm -hmm. same kid, you know, another time he was going to double date with his friend of the prom. And his friend's mom said, well, my next check, my next check, I'll get you the tux, I promise. And something went down, her car went down and she couldn't do it. And uh, he didn't say anything. He just went into the tuck store, canceled his tux, took the money. They went to the Goodwill and bought a couple suits and everybody went to prom. And I, I think what for me was cool was seeing that these kinds of traditions, sure, they reflect our values as a people, but they also shape our values as people. And Anton, the story you you spoke about um, was this is a a, a an, an Ojibwe hunting uh, and harvesting tradition that you described earlier. The refu- right, refusing yeah. The sometimes in English we'll just call it a first kill feast, but mm. the first time someone becomes a successful hunter. Mm. Um, me, any thoughts about what he described there, and particularly of what 
some of these old traditions, it, when they're passed along to younger people, the impact of them. Yeah, I was just thinking about what Anton was sharing. And, you know, definitely this time of the year where it's darker, it's colder, we're more isolated mm-hmm. from one another. And especially um, coming back from pandemic or we're still experiencing pandemic and grief and loss, the New Year celebration itself um, as, is a time mm-hmm. of honoring Um, our ancestors and those before us. And um, also that those that are still living, receiving blessings from our parents, our elders to as we start a new Hmong New Year calendar, which this year started on November 24th for us, those that still practice shamanism in the Hmong community. And where we take such great pride that we get to celebrate that on Thanksgiving weekend every year um, at the River Center. But it also reminds me of these traditions, listening to Anton, that are lost with our elders that have passed and uh, that many uh, that come together uh, for the traditions of blessings, cleansing the home, honoring. Many, uh, many probably experienced tearful moments where um, they will no longer hear their parents or their grandparents' voices blessing them for the new year, but will be actually providing and honoring a, a sacrificial sacrificial plate of food mm-hmm. at the table because they've lost a parent or a sibling uh, during the pandemic. And so definitely is a shift in time, shift in culture, shift in community, where this year at the Minnesota Hmong New Year, we knew that we lost a lot of elders who are probably um, uh, the cultural conductors in the home for the soul calling. So some families didn't have anyone call their souls home this tell, year. Tell me what that is, soul calling. What is that? Yeah, so the, in the Hmong community or the Hmong culture, we believe that as families have ventured on in the whole year, 365 days, they're working away from home. They've probably, in their pursuit of higher education or careers, gone somewhere where even something the slightest of tripping over their feet uh, may have lost their soul. Um, and so uh, when we come together for Hmong New Year, we are calling back um, all the souls of all the living in the household to reunite, to become one family again as we start a brand new year um, and to maintain health and happiness. Um, the Hmong really believe in not just physical health, but spiritual health as well. And um, Alex, before we take a news break, I want to ask you about this connection, past generations to our, our young people today. What's the role of, of honoring a t- t- tradition in that? Well, in some ways, that's you know one of the most important functions of holidays. This is sort of a time in which culture is transmitted. And by culture, I'm including absolutely everything from centuries-old stories and religious beliefs to Music. the fact that we watch this particular movie every year. You know, These are all part of our traditions. But the holidays traditionally in culture after culture are one of those few times when you really do get the multiple generations under one roof. And so it is this kind of amazing time of sharing and of transition and learning that goes both ways because uh, – as Melvin pointed out, the, the young kids and other generations assert themselves in different ways. And um, that's one of the beautiful things about holiday traditions, whatever culture you come from. Right now, let's go to Burnsville and talk to Katie. Katie, what did you want to tell us? Hi, first of all, thank you so much for this program to listen to all the traditions. 
My dad was in uh, chemotherapy about 30 years ago, and the only thing he could tolerate were grilled cheese sandwiches and malt. So that is when we started that tradition for every Christmas Eve. And now eight grandchildren and 11 great-grandchildren later, we have new groups of spatulettes and malt makers every Christmas Eve, and we just be able to keep telling the story. And is your dad still with us? No, he died shortly after that. So it's a fun way to remember him. And truly, who doesn't like grilled cheese and malt? Right. So does it feel it's like it's really keeping his memory alive? Very much so. And it's participatory because you can't make those ahead of time. People get assigned True. the duties and yeah, the right. grandchildren run around and take the malt orders. I love it. I love it. Thank you. That's Katie in Burnsville. In uh, Brooklyn Center, we have Julie on the phone. And Julie, what do you want to tell us as we talk about family traditions? Hi, happy holidays. Hello. Um, so I come from a big family. Uh, I have 35, 35 cousins on um, oh one my. side. And outside of Buffalo, New York, on a small hobby farm. Um, and one of our family traditions is that we all uh, pile into our winter clothes, no matter the weather, and we go out onto the street and we go from door to door Christmas caroling. And with we bring our donkey with us. And with each each house that we go to, the neighbors join as well. Um, so we probably go to 20 houses, and by the end, it's maybe 150 people all Christmas caroling. And we, I'm sorry, did you say you take a donkey house. with you? Did you say donkey? Yeah, donkey. It's uh, the the neighborhood kids really love it. <laughs> and some some houses have some uh, hot drinks outside for us waiting every every single year. And um, yeah, we end the the evening at my grandparents' house um, at the end of the street. And, and are your grandparents still alive? So this past year was the uh, last Christmas that we uh, had at their house. They just passed, um, and we had to sell their house. So now we are, my mom still lives on the street, so uh, she's trying to figure out ways to keep the tradition alive and mm. um, having a smaller crew Christmas caroling this year. Mm. Thank you for, for sharing that. That's Julie calling in from Brooklyn Center. Uh, what do you think about that, Anton? I think that's pretty cool. And I, I bet that donkey's pretty happy because he's probably fed all kinds of apples and stuff like that. It sounds it, like it's awesome. It sounds like a scene from a, a movie, but this is this is real, right? And and something that they think about and look forward to. Oh yeah. There's so many ways to not just honor our ancient ways of, you know, forging community and belonging, but to create new ones. Mm-hmm. And it's been fun for me watching in my own family some of the new stuff that you know, our kids have been coming up with one of my sons as a teenager was really into LARP, live action role play, making foam weapons and staging battles in the yard. And it, it really began <laughs> in the summer when he invited because he was a varsity starter for the wrestling team, the football team and the tennis team. And he invited all of them to our house with their foam weapons to have a big battle. And uh, that was the last time I really wanted to do it in the yard. But he uh <laughs> every winter now he gets everybody together when everybody's off from school and work and we we have big winter battles it's like game of thrones out there and uh it's a lot of fun and and actually you know i think my my wife and her mom like to sit on the deck and sip coffee and watch everybody but everyone else is engaged in the melee so that's always fun but that has to be very empowering for a child too to have, you know, you recognize like I want to do this and support it and allow him to keep doing it. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. And 
we do have some extended family, you know, in other parts of the state or even other parts of the country. And so we have a regular annual family Zoom get together and send each other secret gifts in the mail. And you have to guess who you think sent you the gift. And they even include the pets and everything and all of it. So <laughs> it's fun. All right. Let's take another phone call as we talk about family and wintertime traditions in Minneapolis. Catherine's on the phone. Hi, Catherine. What did you want to tell us? Hi, thank you so hi. much for having me. Happy holidays. Hello. Um, hi, so I'm originally from Minneapolis, but I actually moved to Sweden four years ago. So oh. it's been super interesting, um, kind of adjusting to the change in Christmas traditions. Um, I come from immigrants who moved from Sweden to Minnesota. So moving from Minnesota back to Sweden, you see a lot of those similarities oh. around Christmas. Um, my family's always celebrated Christmas Eve, which is how they do it here in Sweden. Um, but one tradition that I super love that we do every year is St. Lucia Day. Uh, you have your Lucia buns and you get together, you just drink your warm glug and you have your Lucia buns and you listen to the carols and stuff like that in your local church with your children or on TV. And hold stuff. up, hold up. What's a Lucia bun? Describe a that Lucia, for me. It's, a, it's so good. It's just <laughs> slightly sweet saffron roll with uh, two raisins for decorations. Mm. And so I don't know how to make them, but my mother-in-law and uh, sister-in-law make them every year. So super good. So you live in Sweden, but you're home for the holidays. You're home for Christmas. Yeah, I listen to NPR every day, actually, from Sweden. So oh, okay. I, uh, yeah, I listen to you every day. And that's, uh, I guess, maybe that's a tradition as well. Staying connected. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's nice to keep up with what's going on back home and things like that. So I can. So what are you? I seem to know more about the weather and stuff than my family who <laughs> lives in Minnesota. So it's nice to tell them. <laughs> so this Lucia bun, what what is yeah. what do you think that does for you in terms of connecting you to your past and your present and your future, Catherine? Yeah, I think it's. I mean, I think everybody can attest to this that food is a way for all of us to connect to any culture. If you want to get to know a culture, I think it's really mm-hmm. through their food culture. Mm-hmm. And the Lucia bun is a huge part of Swedish culture. And I think a lot of Scandinavia in general. Mm. Um, but Swedes take it very seriously. You you really have it only around Christmas time. It's a very special treat that just reminds you of the holidays. And because of what St. Lucia represents to a lot of Swedes, I think, too, with it being mm-hmm. such a dark time of year. Yes. Like the sun sets here, and I'm in the southern part of Sweden. It sets at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon and doesn't rise until about 8 o'clock in the Ooh. morning. So St. Lucia is important because it's all about bringing light into the dark and then you have this this food to help kind of nourish you through the dark cold season so it kind of brings together families in that tradition as well and reminds you of the good things in life i guess in a dark time well that is Catherine. That sense? yes it does thank you Catherine from minneapolis who lives in sweden now thank you Catherine, and thank you for continuing to listen to npr uh, alex tell us more about uh, saint lucia day and and lucia buns yeah, so St. Lucia's Day, as as the caller mentioned, is is a big deal in Sweden, but um, that's one of the many traditions that Swedish immigrants brought to Minnesota. And especially in the 19th century, when Swedes were still pretty, you know, first, second generation immigrants, still observing a lot of the traditions, this is one of the traditions you would see across Minnesota. Um, the day itself is on December 13th, and that's it's an Italian saint from the third century, celebrated um, feast day across Europe, but it took on a special significance in Sweden, merging with some sort of local legends of a saint who, during a time of starvation in the Middle Ages, seen in white with candles on her head, bringing food to starving people. Again, a perfect sort of midwinter thing when the 
concept of starvation is very near. Um, and in modern times, December 13th, St. Lucia's Day has been seen as sort of the beginning of the Christmas season in both Sweden and Swedish American culture. Let's take another phone call as we talk about traditions uh, in the wintertime and around the holidays in St. Louis Park. Dorothy's on the line. Good morning, Dorothy. What do you want to tell us about? Hi there. Um, I wanted to share that I grew up with candles on my Christmas tree and definitely no Christmas lights. So we would Ooh. light the candles and sit and watch the tree. There was always a fire extinguisher nearby. Oh my! Um, but yeah, well, we sat and lit the tree and we sang carols and... It was not a nightly event. It hand, happened a handful of times, probably in December, and then always on Christmas Eve. So now fast forward, and I have my own family and children of my own, and we have candles on our tree. Um, and it's just this lovely time to sit and maybe slow down. Um, we sing, and then our own spin on it as a family is that a few years ago, we were reading Harry po- I was reading Harry Potter books aloud. And we started reading books aloud while we were while we lit the tree. And so now we have a book that we're reading aloud. And it's just a really lovely time to just slow down, focus on the tree. We turn off the lights. And I'm sure that some people think that we light it and then walk around and wrap presents or cook or whatever. And it's definitely not... <laughs> It's not that so, at all. Like, we're, we're talking about... Uh, just leave it lit. You can't uh, leave it lit and right. walk away into so another a, room. A little candle with a real flame, like fire. Yes. Yes. What supports yes. the candle? I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to visualize sure. this. How do you do it? I mean, it's a little um, clip. It's almost like... I mean, it's almost like a binder clip. And then in that clip is almost like a little tray that can catch the wax. Uh-huh. And then okay. almost think of like metal a metal flower uh-huh. with petals that sort of you right. can um, press them close to the candle to grip the candle and of course you have to be a little bit careful about where you put them on your tree on strong branches mm-hmm. and you don't put an ornament right above it that's going to catch on fire there's little strategy to it right and, and is this but it is really a lovely time i really have always enjoyed it so. and dorothy do you actually light the candles just on one specific night or just whenever you want how to, like how no like i mean sometimes it just has to do whereas you know no one has basketball or an event or a thing to go to so mm-hmm. um you know on the night maybe where we're at home when we finish dinner we're like hey let's like the tree and it is probably a 15 minute you know affair it's not we don't light it for like an hour right. you know it's wow. not this long thing it really is just this nice time to just sit and relax and we recently had a holiday party and we did it for our guests. And I had a neighbor who played piano. We sang. And so I shared that tradition with my guests. And I've had many holiday parties but have not lit the tree because I think people were just eating and drinking and I didn't want to bother to interrupt maybe. And we did it this year and everybody really enjoyed it. Um, so now I think when, going forward, we will be sure to do that always okay. you know, right. during our holiday parties. Dorothy, I'm trying to get on your guest list. That's uh, Dorothy from St. Louis Park. Uh, Alex, uh, you're there at the Minnesota Historical Society. Is is Share with us some background on, yeah. on lighting a, a real candle on a tree. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled that people still do that. Obviously, you need to be safe. And I'm yes. glad to hear that they're not uh, wandering away. And, and historically, yeah. yeah, historically, that was never the, the case. You know, it was people... 
were in, if anything, more conscious of fire hazards in the past than than currently. <laughs> but yeah, the lighting of the tree is something that dates back at least to the 1600s. There are traditions that connect it with Martin Luther, although not a lot of documentation to that. But um, as the Christmas tree gained popularity in the 19th century, it had been something that was more popular in just certain regions of Germany and wherever immigrants from that region went. But in the 19th century, it becomes broadly part of English-speaking culture, and candles have always been a part of that, uh, replaced in more recent times with electric lights. But I'm glad someone's keeping the candle burning. And watching it as it yes, burns. Yes, exactly. Okay, always I want to get, get one more phone call in from a listener uh, in Northeast Minneapolis. Catherine's been waiting on the line. Catherine, tell us uh, about your tradition. Oh, Merry Festivus to everyone. Thank oh. you. <laughs> <laughs> I am, uh, as they mentioned, German Polish, Irish, and French. And our tradition was a lot to do with food and some ceremony. Um, on the foods, we we always had some things we joked about. Was my aunt's raw turkey because she couldn't cook? <laughs> um, and my other aunt's um, jello salad, which I would not touch. <laughs> Those were my mother's sisters. Ooh. And my mother's other sister would get from Poland a, a bread called oblaki, which is like a communion wafer, but it's not blessed or anything, and we would dip it in honey and break off pieces and share it. And then we always had a huge ham buffet dinner on Christmas Eve because we're all, kids were in church a lot. So we'd come over to my aunt's house, the, the lady that made the jello, and then have this huge buffet and then run off to church. And then um, me being French, I would always make the bouche de Noël, which is a chocolate, mm-hmm. like a jelly mm-hmm. roll, decorated like a forest log with you know, berries and leaves and everything on it. So those were our Northern European traditions. And, oh, the spritz cookies and the Russian tea cakes, which I always got to decorate. Those were my mother's things. So unfortunately, all the uh, previous generation has passed on, but uh, our kids are not picking up on continuing these. So we hope we... um, don't lose this. And thanks so much. Oh, thank you. That's Catherine from Northeast Minneapolis. I have loved this conversation so much. I love what what, what everyone is doing in some way to um, just take a moment and to be present, to think about the past and the future and be grateful for the people we have with us um, right now. So I want to thank our, our, our guests and to all, all of our lovely listeners as well. Today, as we talked about family traditions, winter traditions, we've been talking with Mi Vang, the president of the United Hmong Family Incorporated, as well as Anton Troyer, professor of a Jibre there at Bemidji State University. Thank you, Anton. He specializes in tribal sovereignty and history and Ojibwe language and culture. And also Alex Weston here in studio with us from the Minnesota Historical Society where he's a program associate. Thank you everybody for listening today. Be careful out there on the roads. Pay attention to the weather. Keep listening to NPR News. We'll keep you updated. Today's conversation was produced by Samantha Matsumoto. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.